You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's story about an Army veteran who turned into a clothing company that benefits veterans with PTSD. More on that in just a moment. Our normal reminders, as always, folks, got to get on that holiday shopping early this year, but you need to go to hazardground.com first if you're going to shop at Amazon. Because when you go to hazardground.com, as I forget the name of my website and podcast here, uh, as you go to hazardground.com, Go to the bottom of the homepage, click on the Amazon button there or into the sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all of your normal shopping. Same thing with your smartphone. It'll redirect you to the app so all your credit card information is saved. We get a percentage of what you guys spend and spend heftily at this holiday season. Buy for the ones you love. We'll get a percentage of that and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground as well. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast and leave us some more Apple reviews. Doesn't have to be a lengthy review, but this helps grow the show and helps grow this Hazard Ground community. Again, doesn't have to be long. However you get your Apple podcast, leave us a review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We'll post it on social media. We certainly appreciate you guys helping us out. As well, I want to remind you about our partnership with Kill Cliff. Make sure you go to killcliff.com. Get all of your clean energy CBD drinks at Kill Cliff. Uh, some of the best drinks around. I mean, I'm a daily drinker of Kill Cliff. Uh, and again, if you can use CBD and CBD products, fantastic way to get your CBD through Kill Cliff. Clean energy drinks, absolutely the best in the biz. Download the Kill Cliff TV app because you can get our podcasts there as well. If you want to watch them there on the Kill Cliff TV app and our YouTube channel, all of it is available there. So again, killcliff.com and the Kill Cliff TV app. All right, on to this week's guest, who is a former Army First Lieutenant who had one deployment to Iraq and spent just three and a half years in the Army, but joined relatively late in the war on terror back in 2017. After his deployment to Iraq, he founded Easy Company Outfitters, which is a boutique apparel brand delivering premium vintage Hawaiian shirts and beach lifestyle apparel, 100% American handmade Hawaiian shirts and apparel that support surf therapy programs and veterans with PTSD. He is Timothy Grovenberg joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Timothy, welcome, man. And thank you for being here. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me, man. Excited for the conversation, brother. No, absolutely, man. It's great to be here. Uh, we actually came across each other on social media. Um, and so I, I found the company and I, I shot a note over to our producer, Matt, and I said, what about these guys? Let's look into them. And Matt loved it. I mean, he thought you guys were great, thought you had a fantastic company. Um, and, and you know, uh, I think that you guys are doing something amazing. But I also think that, you know, your story in particular is one that we certainly wanted to tell. So we certainly appreciate you being here. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, back to the beginning. As I mentioned, you joined very late in the war on terror, uh, 2017 to be exact. So what was sort of the reason why um, you decided to get in the Army? Yeah, I think uh, I think that that's an awesome uh, introduction, Mark. And I think not only was I late to the to the party, if you will, but also just late in my in my life in terms of joining too. I was 28 years old when I joined actually. So I was definitely one of the, one of the older ones. Um, and I can kind of, I mean, we have, you know, an hour plus, so I know these types of, of questions, you know, why and how did, did you join? You can give the 30 second answer or you can give the, the five minute one. So I'll try to go somewhere in the, in the middle. But for me, I think to kind of un, unpack how I got there, it, it was, um, it basically started back in, when I was in college, for me, I knew I was, I always wanted to join. And that was, that was my goal when I was going to get out of, out of school. Not on, I've heard uh, several times you tell your story too, Mark, and you know, you did ROTC. I, I did not do ROTC. Actually, I had a scholarship and I was lucky. I was playing division two college football and it was just ha having a blast. So I didn't have to do ROTC, thankfully, um, just was able to do other things as well. But so I was going to go to OCS right after right after school. And I was going through the, the process um, and had kind of aligned my entire life. And uh, when I went to go, when I went to, to, to join, I, I went through the medical exam and I actually 
had some uh like medical issues basically i had like a small amount of blood in my urine and i was and so that 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 disqualified me for like a year or so while they were like hey you need to go figure this out and thank god it, w- it was nothing but basically what happened was that i was done with playing football and i was boxing at the time just to stay in shape nothing crazy just like having fun in the gym or whatever but from like practice sparring and all that i ended up like having some blood in my urine which DQ'd me and I think that's like that's just life man like shit shit like that happens like you can't you can't plan for it you have no idea that that this is going to happen to you but anyway so when I graduated from from school I kind of had this giant wrench thrown in my plans you know and I was like 22 years old and needed money needed to work and so that my, my original plan got delayed and so I went to work and so I ended up getting a job I had a finance degree and was happy to be doing finance. I ended up getting getting a job. And my plan originally was, okay, you know, do one or two years kind of in the corporate world and then and then I'll join and fulfill this calling and then and then go back. And that's that's what ended up happening, but it just took me longer. I got this finance job and ended up loving it and just having a blast and was getting promoted and making money and worked my way up. And so what what a two-year plan turned into a, a six-year plan pretty soon. And then as as I turned like 25 or 26 I was like all right either I'm gonna like I'm gonna do this or I'm not gonna do this um and so eventually I I you know jumped in and did it and I'm so thankful that I did but I think my path to serving was something that the 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 passion was very constant the route to get there was anything but straight uh but that I mean my my story I love talking to people that don't have uh like the most normal background or path there because that that was my story and so i really resonate with that and so if you had i know there's a lot of there's a lot of non-veterans or or, and veterans that listen to the podcast mark and i think that's something that i love talking to people that are you know have goals and are struggling with how to get there or want to serve but don't know exactly how how to make it fit with it with their life i'm like i get it man it's not going to be it's not going to be exactly you know show up go to meps and then you're you're going to deploy in a year and like it's, it's, it's not how it happens you know like things things get get uh you know thrown 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 in the way there yeah and so i mean you know you start this journey off um when you do it do, do you know what you want to do in the army do you know what you want your career field to be, or is it just one of those things where it's a desire to serve and and here I am, I'll take whatever you give me kind of deal. Yeah. I think if you would have asked me at, at 22, what I wanted to do, I would have said, I want to go to ranger school. I want to be infantry officer. You know, I want to do, I want to do all of the cool guy stuff. And then when I was 28, I, I was anything but that. I kind of realized like I, I was not a cool guy at all. And I, and I, I'm still not, and I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with that. So I, I knew, I knew from, from the beginning when I, when I joined at 28, that I was gonna, that I was hopeful to branch as a finance officer, which is actually pretty hilarious because when I went through OCS and, you know, they've got however many slots and everybody's kind of vying for their, 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 their place on the, on the, on the OML and, and think about branching. And I'm like the one loser that's like, like trying to branch finance, you know, a lot of times that's like a force branch or something. And, and <laughs> like all, all my friends were like, dude, what's the, what, what is wrong with you? Like, why do you want to do finance? But it's, it's what, it's what I'm good at. It's what I love doing. Uh, it's what I was doing before the army. And I kind of saw it as, okay, I'm only going to be here for three years. Like what's the biggest impact that I can, that I can actually have, you know, like, could I go, branch field artillery or infantry or something like that and like do a good job and probably be useful like definitely right but if i branch finance where i've studied gone to gone to undergrad gone to grad school worked for six years and i could bring some some skill set into the army at least in some capacity then i probably could have a little bit more of an impact so that's kind of how i approached this from you know, laying in my bed at night thinking like, what makes sense for me? That that's like, that, that's how I got comfortable with, with like what I was going to do in the army. And it, it worked out great. I had a fantastic career, got to uh, go on a deployment, which is also funny because I actually was not hoping to go on a deployment. I was cool with it. If, if it, if it happened, it happened, but I wasn't like searching for a deployment and especially branching finance, you know, you're not really thinking about 
like deployments in Iraq and like kind of like what more of my infantry buddies were like talking about and, and you know thinking about really um but then it, it it ended up happening to me and a lot of my buddies at Brant's infantry never deployed and here I was as a loser finance officer and actually deployed <laughs> So how quickly does the transition go for you from, you know, signing up to getting through finance school and everything to getting to a deployment? Uh, it happened quickly, man. I think that that was I think all that bad luck that I had when I was 22 kind of flipped and, and gave me some good some good luck or at least with timing when I was when I was 28. And that when I like just when I went to the recruiting station and was like, hey, I know exactly what I want to do. Like, sign, sign me up. To that was in like July of 2017, and I was at Basic in October of 2017. Like, that happened really quickly. And I know that's not that's not the case for everybody. I mean, my first story, right? I was going to get delayed for a year. So I, I get it. a lot of people have delays or, or or whatever. But for the second time around, it 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 happened quickly, and then. Once I was in the system and moving through, it, it was very quick. I basic three months rolled right into OCS, started that like a week after basic ended, uh, did three months at OCS, went into to Bullock, started that immediately. So I was kind of like going through the schools, you know, with with limited delay, which was which was actually kind of nice. Um, I was excited to just be going to the, to the next step. And then I showed up, I got orders to go to the 101st I showed up at at Fort Campbell reported to my unit went to aerosol school did all that and then once that was done they're like hey we're going on deployment in like eight months so like get your shit together because uh, you're coming um, and that that was it and that was another kind of serendipitous story of we thought we were going to to Kuwait with with management of of, of we're doing the cash management mission for uh, like all of CENTCOM basically but we were supposed to be based in, in Kuwait. So, you know, that's kind of like when you're going on, a, I ended up not, I'm going to go into Kuwait, but also getting split and told, Hey, you're going to Iraq instead. So I had kind of a, a whirlwind experience. And I think that was, uh, that was also just like kind of a mental roller coaster. You think you're going on this chill deployment, like think you're going to, to Kuwait, you know, you uh, prepare accordingly right and then you get there and it's like hey plans are changing you're going to iraq you know just things things can switch that quickly um yeah so but it, it all happened pretty pretty quick i was at fort camel for maybe eight months and then deployed so are you thinking at any point in time when you were getting ready to deploy that you're in danger like is is are you feeling like, hey i'm a finance officer i'm, I'm never going to be anywhere near anything like <laughs> yeah i mean uh, f for sure I, in in so many ways that that that's a fair statement like i one i'm like I, from my entire like experience was like i'm not the cool guy like i'm not the ranger school guy i'm not i'm not like the high speed sf guy i'm not that like that that's 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 not me i feel like i'm in the movies where they have like like the nerdy guy that shouldn't be in these scenes but like ends up being like in you know dragged into some of these some of these like events or whatever, I was, I felt like I was, I was that guy. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really think that I was going to be in danger. Right. Like uh, one, my MOS, right. We're not, we're not out there like kicking in doors and pulling triggers. Right. We're, we're like managing cash. We're a support function. So you have that. Then we were supposed to go to Kuwait and also it was 2019. Like it was kind of the, the tail end of things. So there was a lot of things to make you, think that you were going to be safe right i think i mean you have the overarching thing like hey you're going on a deployment it's still the middle east like you can never discount it down to zero but on that spectrum i think we went into it thinking we we're going to be kind of on the on the safer side um which turned out we turned out in large strokes to be so somewhat accurate and in a lot of ways turned out to be not accurate too um and again i think that's just a part of my my story like uh, I thought one thing and it turned out to be something totally, totally else. So from that standpoint, when you get there on ground, I mean, I, I know you're in Kuwait. Let me start this way. Nothing really happens in Kuwait, period. So <clears throat> the amount of time you were in Kuwait, I assume it's boring as hell, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, is there anything of note that we need to discuss 
about your time in Kuwait other than a sandstorm and boredom? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, uh, I, I'd be wasting everybody's time if I was telling right, stories okay. about so, Kuwait. So did you know ahead of time that you were going to Kuwait, then Iraq, or you found out in Kuwait that you were heading to Iraq? Found out in Kuwait. Okay, so what? how does that go down? Man, that goes down with basically uh, my commander just being like, hey, we need a we need an officer up in Erbil and you're going. Uh, that was like the extent of it. So basically some shit happened and and we needed a, a, a hole to fill in the AO and I got tagged. And so I went and actually went to I was with our head, our headquarter element. I went down to one of our detachments at that point that was operating in Northern Iraq. So yeah, that was it. Uh, any nervousness? Yeah, I think, uh, well, one, just being told hey, you're going from Kuwait to Iraq just brings a lot of nerves, but, uh, I was leaving my guys too. Like I had, I had trained with, with this team for, you know, eight months, almost a year at the time. And, you know, we had a great bond that, that was like really forming, you know, we we're kind of at that stage where we had gone through training and like gone through all the awkwardness of like, I don't fucking know you and you don't know me. And like all that had kind of like ran its course and we we're getting comfortable with, with each other and having a little bit of success and like times were like, things were actually good. Right. And so I was sad to leave that team and then to be dropped into another team right it's just especially as an officer too like they don't, they don't really they don't, they don't really know you you, you, don't, you don't know them you're, you're like just parachuted in so that was another thing that brought a lot of nerves uh too just from like a a team element but it ended up all while working out and i i got latched onto a great team so it ended up being fine when you get there um does the sense of realism you know like kind of hit you like wow uh you know, maybe Kuwait is a better spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was weird for, for me too. Like it, it's all the little shit that, that you don't see in the movies that people don't talk about. Like, like for me, so I, I didn't grow up with like weapons everywhere. I grew up in the North shore of Chicago. Right. So like we didn't have guns in, in, in the house. I had shot a couple of times, but like, even that, like sleeping next to my M17 with my M4 underneath my rack with like, like shit like that you're like man this is like i got fucking bullets around me and these weapons and like and you're wearing your kit everywhere and like that those just kind of like daily norms that that you don't think are going to be weird you know that that was kind of weird for me for the first couple of days or weeks and then and then you realize like everything becomes normalized and then that's also pretty fucking weird. Like it shouldn't be normal that you're cool with all of this, but it's your life. So you, like your brain protects you and, and it becomes normal. It becomes not, not weird, you know, um, after a while. So yeah, that, that was just, uh, you know, eat, eating your dinner with your full kit on and shit like that is like, just take some time to get, to get used to. Um, I, I'm wondering if there's a seminal moment for you during that deployment that sort of cauterized your, you know, beliefs and sort of sort of made you feel like you had validated the decision that you made, or was there something that happened that made you question whether it was the right decision that you made? Uh, man, that's a loaded question. It's a it's a it's a great question too. I would say, I would say. If everybody has to, everybody has their, their own journey for, for me, I think in, in, in broad strokes, it was, it was, it was very positive. Like I, I look back at my experience and, and I think I try to be very honest with like, yeah, was it everything that I, that I thought it was going to be? Absolutely not. Right. And in a lot of ways it was, it was better. Um, and looking back on it now, I mean, this is just like, I guess pretty far out there, but like, I just, I refuse to be like that 65 year old man with a bunch of fucking regrets about like, should have, would have, could have, right. Like, I just don't want that for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I'll just, I would just end up being unhappy basically. And, and in between, between now and then too, like living with these re like regrets, whatever that means to you, right. Like, Hey, I regret like not doing, not taking this job or not, not talking to this person or not, not whatever. Like, I don't want to live like that. And I was close to living like that uh, you know, myself. So I think 
when I look back, I, I am almost like proud that I did take the plunge and, and took time off away from the corporate world, if, if you will, and, and, and fulfilled this, this calling, you know, for me, it was, it was serving in the military for somebody else. It, it might, it might be another, another uh, project, but so that was, I think that's, that's like the, the highest level that I can really get to. And I look back and say, okay, this was, this was like, this is overall really solid experience. And then when you get down to the nitty gritty, yeah, it kind of sucks. Like going to the field sucks, going on deployment for nine months sucks. Like leaving my fiance at the time totally sucked, right? Like going through some like bad experiences was not, was not fun. Right. So, but you kind of know that going into that, it's going to be a little bit shitty. You don't, you don't know the, the details, right. You don't know how it's going to be shitty for you, but you, I think, most people are smart enough to understand it's not going to be all sunshine and roses. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how I, I go about it. I think when I look back, say, yep, it was overall good. Of course there was some bad, but you know, that's like anything. Well, you, you talk about some of those bad moments and, and things that had happened to you. One specific moment that um, for you, that, that sticks with you and why your company, easy, easy company outfitters, you know, works with veterans with PTSD um, just, you know, let us know the, the background of that moment and how it affected you. Yeah, man. So that was uh, in January of 2020. Uh, so right right before that, we have we had of, of course uh, conducted an airstrike and, and killed Suleimani, and uh, you know in retaliation for that, Iran shot a bunch of ICBMs, you know, inter, intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles back at us in Iraq, right? And so. Uh, they went to two bases. Um, I was at one of them in Erbil, which is uh, uh, kind of the very tip top north of Iraq between Iran and, and Syria. Um, so I was at Erbil Air Base that, that took some of those ICBMs. And um, yeah, I can kind of go through the night, but that was, uh, that was my, I think uh, that was my combat experience, if, if you will, which was... Uh, uh, just absolute crazy. And I know everybody has their own, their own stories or, or, or whatever, you know, mine, mine is definitely unique. I think a lot of my story is a little bit different. Um, I'm, ha I'm happy to, to talk about it, but, uh, yeah, the getting, living through that night and, uh, and then I actually joined fifth special forces group after, which was there with Erbil with me that, that night too. And so it's been really helpful, like hearing their stories, um, through the exact same night, they were at a different part of the base, but lived through the exact same experience and hearing them talk about it and just like how fucking helpless everybody felt, you know, a lot of these guys have been deployed many times, but, you know, getting in firefights, whatever, uh, knowing like ICBMs were coming to fucking smoke the entire base was like, there's nothing you could do. And I think that really, uh, that really threw some people for like a loop there. Yeah. I mean, it's a lack of control. I mean, it's one of those deals where in combat, when you have a rifle, at least you feel like you have some measure of control over the outcome of the battle. You have no measure of control where ICBMs, where rockets and mortars are going to land. And right. where I mean, you can control where you're standing, but that doesn't mean it's always in the right spot. There's a lot, a lot of control is lost and a lot is left out there to make you believe that it's not what you thought it was going to be. And so, that is jarring for a lot of people. Um, you know, you just always want to feel like you you can at least affect the enemy or affect the outcome of battle in in a way that you're trained to. Uh, and when you take that away from people, that helpless feeling can be very, very unnerving. Yeah, no, spot on. That's yep. Yeah, that that's exactly the how how it felt in the experience. And uh yeah, I think that compiled with you know the whole uh, journey to, to get there, going to Kuwait, then going to Iraq. And then this happens. It was like, you know, I, I, I think I was trying to get mentally prepared for that. And I think when, if you go, I mean, you could speak to it, Mark, but you know, if you're going on a deployment, you know, you're, you, you know, you likely are going to a spot where you're going to be getting into firefights. You kind of, I think you can maybe prepare a little bit more, you know, I, I don't know how much you really can or how realistic that is, but versus thinking like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be chilling in Kuwait the whole time, you know? Uh, and then all of a sudden you're in Iraq taking ICBM. It's like, it, yeah, that was, you know, two different ends of the, 
of the spectrum there with not not a ton of time to like I guess uh, prepare prepare for that. Do you remember talking to people after the attack and, and sort of what was some of the emotions and feelings that uh, some of the people on the base had had with you? Yeah, it was, uh, I would say maybe from, I can give kind of two different sides of the story there, which I think are kind of, are kind of cool. The, the, the dudes that, that I was with, right. That obviously those are the first people that you're going to kind of like unpack shit with and, uh, kind of start to start to talk, talk through things. And I think, uh, people were just scared, man, like, uh, going, going through that and just kind of realizing like, fuck, we are like, we are like pawns in this like high stakes political game that's happening between our countries right now. And like, we killed one of their guys and they, they fucking shot some big ass missiles back at, 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 at us. And we were, you know, we were the, the targets and we were going to be the dudes that were going to like die for this. Uh, yeah. I think that, that was what we were talking about kind of like right, right after, um, and just like you were like you were saying, just like there's nothing we could do. You know, I remember talking to my commander at the time and, you know, we would like go to the bunkers and shit that that's where we went that 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 night. But the bunkers would do nothing. Right. These are like for mortars and shit. They're not going to protect you from the ICBM. And I remember just talking with him uh, the next the next night and being like because we didn't know like what was going to happen the next the next day. Right. And we were we were trying to come up with a plan. It's like, dude, there's, there is no plan. Like there's, you can't like, there's no place for us to go. Like what, what are we supposed to, we were just sitting ducks. And I think that was one of the things that that was difficult was just knowing like, you can't, it's not like you're back at, at, at the base and you're going to go out the next day and you can maybe like come up with a different strategy or different route or, you know, bring, bring you know whatever bring different supplies bring whatever you can like change change the game to your advantage this was like dude you are you are just gonna sit here and just fucking hope that nothing happens to you um so that that was that was kind of difficult to uh to kind of wrap our our heads around so that that's what the conversation was like on the on the street so to speak and then flash forward to like a year later, I got back to Fort Campbell and was super fortunate to get invited to go over to Fist Bush Forces Group for my last year and do, you know, a finance mission with, with them. And so uh, they were operating um, in northern Iraq and Syria at the time. So that's how I got to know those guys and earned a job over there just with uh, working with them on, on the deployment. But those dudes were there, too. Um when, when that, when that, that happened and they, they tell some crazy stories, uh, like having access to, uh, like they knew what, like that the missiles were going to come in, uh, like about six or seven minutes before they actually landed. And so they had some, some, some time to prepare, but even them, uh, they, they, like they had, they almost had a, a more of a mental roller coaster in that they knew like six minutes before that these missiles were coming and there was nothing they could do. Like, honestly, I don't know what is, what's like worse knowing or not, or, or not knowing, but they, I mean, they went through like a six minute period and these guys have been in tons, like seen all kinds of crazy shit. Right. But it just like pops off. Right. This was like, Hey, you have six minutes. Do you call your wife? Do you fucking like, what do you do for those? Like you're actually being told like, Hey, you have no shit on satellite, like seven or eight ICBMs coming at your base that are going to fucking kill you. Right. And like, what do you, what do you do for those six minutes? And they had to go through that, uh, which when I went to, went, went to fifth group, they, they, you know, they talked about all kinds of crazy. And like, that was one of the most like mentally torturing experiences because of the fact that you knew what was, what was coming. So yeah, that it was kind of, uh, interesting to hear there. I think the answer is obvious. You get in the portalette and you just sit down and just wait for it to end. One, you know, if you're going to go, go out with clean underwear. I think that's most important. And then two, what are the chances that a rocket actually hits a shitter? You know, like, I mean, seems just like very unlikely. That's that's why I mean, it's probably aimed in a building, right? I mean, just you know, I love find, it. Find a random port of John, just sit down and just wait for the world to end. Yeah. You know? yeah. 
I mean, I the world's going to shit anyway. You may as well sit there. <laughs> you know what? There's there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, yeah. And you know what? If you go, you'll have some crazy nickname that fucking gets gets made after you, and it'll be fine. I mean, I would figure you might get a pass getting into the pearly gates if you just covered in all sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I no. take a shower. You'll be good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My twisted exactly. thinking on the whole scenario. You know, no, no one ever accused me of being a genius. Um, okay, so that deployment ends, and you end up coming back. I mean, is there a sense that when you get back, that that night had affected you more than what you had re- recognized at the time? Yeah, f- for sure. I think one thing, the the biggest thing for me that I that I didn't know, and look, people go through have gone through things like multiple, multiple times, probably more traumatic than what, than what I went through. And I think not to like discount, I think that's also not fair uh, when people, you know, compare their trauma to other people's trauma. It's like, Hey, I like my trauma is worse than your trauma. Like, that's not a good, that's not like, that's not a healthy conversation right. for people to be, to be happening. So uh, having, so I try not to do that, but I am, you know, I think it is helpful to understand like you're not alone and, and like, you know, your experience is, is, is one experience alongside people that have had many, uh, many other ones too. So I think that that is helpful, but I think for me, what was difficult when I got home from, from Iraq and that deployment and, and that, and that, that experience in, in particular was that, uh, all that shit happened. Like when the first missiles landed, we were, we were asleep. Like we were in our, in our beds, uh, like the, the, the 101st dudes did not have a uh, warning that these missiles were coming. We got woken up by hearing them. So, and then the cluster fuck that unfolded after that. So uh, I think that was, that was something that I wasn't expecting was that I got home and then uh, couldn't sleep like right when I got, got, got home. And I didn't, and I had and I was like, man, I'm like, I feel okay, but like I'm having this, this like weird time sleeping. And then, uh, my wife kind of helped me unpack it, but like what, what I learned quickly was that, uh, like I was associating sleeping with not being safe basically. And so I like just had a really tough time, uh, like sleeping. And then I was able to, to get over it, thankfully, just by like, uh, you know, working through some of that, uh, like some of those issues, if, if you will. But, um, yeah, that was, that was definitely one of the things where I was so excited to be coming home. I was like, I'm safe. I'm good. All my guys are good. Like the deployment was like, was good all all around, like a a, a super solid deployment and coming back and being like, shit, maybe I am a little bit more messed up than I, than I thought, you know? No, I mean, a hundred percent. It's, it sort of sneaks up on you. It hits you like a ton of bricks when it does. So from that standpoint, I certainly understand, you know, where your head is. Um, do, do you feel like something needs to be done about it? Or is it just one of those, okay, here I am sort of deal? Yeah, you mean just about like, like helping people with like PTSD and and, and well, Helping just, yourself, I mean, first more than anything. Yeah, I, that's, that's a great way to put it. I think it does start with like, with yourself and wanting to wanting to, to help yourself. And if you, uh, like, I think it's super tough in a lot of ways, just with, uh, I mean, this, we could get philosophical here, but like, just to be honest with yourself about like how good or how not good are you? And that, and that, that really expands to like anything in life, you know, like, are you, are you like, how mentally strong are you right now? Like, are you, are you, are you fucked up because, you know, you're struggling with, things at home, you know, or a deployment or relationship or, you know, one of your kids isn't doing well in school or like something's bothering you and just realizing like, this is affecting me and I'm not in a good space because I'm worried about this, this thing. Right. And just like understanding what's happening to you and realizing like, Hey, it's, it's, it's putting me not in a great like headspace or, or whatever. So I think, that's like step one is realizing like you're, you're messed up, not because of anything that you're doing that's wrong, because something happened and it's affecting you. And you should be honest with that and be like, Hey, I'm, I'm not my best. I'm not in in my best space right now. And then once, once you do that, I feel like it's easier to then talk about things and ask, ask for help. But uh, I think that, I mean, for me, that was one of the, like, looking back, that's probably one of the, 
the key pieces for me just to like be mentally strong is admitting like, Hey, I'm not mentally strong right now. And I, I need to take five minutes and, and get better. And then, and you can't, right. It just takes a little bit of, of patience. So you decided to get out of the army after three and a half years. How'd you come to that decision? Uh, I think I made that decision before I even joined. Oh, I, yeah. I, yeah. I knew, I knew from, from, the beginning or at least I, it's tough to say i knew because shit as i hopefully you know as you've heard in my story everything that i knew i didn't actually know you know <laughs> nothing nothing went according to plan uh and that's okay but uh i believe that i was only going to do three years for me um that just is what made sense for a lot of reasons but uh the biggest one really was that uh you know i had basically my wife i had met this girl and was you know was wanting to get engaged got engaged we're, we're married now uh you know we've gone through this these great chapters with with, with each other and you know really i think been tested in a lot of ways and it, it worked out great but um yeah for me yeah i knew going in uh that i was probably only going to do one contract if you will um so, and the big reason was for her, like she, she's got her own career. She's doing a million things. And I just wasn't really prepared or willing to like drag her around to a bunch of army bases for 20 years. So I think I knew that I knew it was only going to be a one and one and done for me. All right. So after that, you're, you clearly have the background uh, in finance and in business. Uh, so how is the idea for easy company birthed where is the uh the conception oh uh, so it was base it was like a uh, a culmination of 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 two things i think at at its at its highest level um the first was just personal for me was that i was looking for a way to stay involved and be a positive impact on the community right like and it was really that simple like it wasn't I didn't really know how I was going to do it. I just knew that 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 serving and our military community was something that was important to me. And I didn't want to just give it up. Like I couldn't just walk away and be like, oh, well, that was a fun, like almost four years, like good for me. And then and then just let it let it kind of be. I I felt like I wanted to stay connected. So I was looking for something that would allow me to stay connected to the community and you know do something that would hopefully help people. So I think that was like the first half was just me being in that state of mind of looking for something. Right. And then the second thing, which is really like the idea for the, for the product was that when I had got to the 101st, I had started to do a bunch of research. You know, I had heard of the 101st, just like through, through passing basically, but I didn't know really that, that much, uh, is what is what I, I discovered. So I was doing all this research, and of course, with the hundred and first being like a historic World War II unit, I found myself just in all of these World War II stories, you know. And not and you know, it started with hundred and first, but then it just expanded into you know, you get into the like black holes of the internet, you can just keep digging forever. So I was in one of those kind of research phases where. I was spending like a lot of time at, at, at nighttime, just reading uh, and learning about things. And I was really enjoying it. Actually, I think that's why I was doing so much of it. But so I came across this, this, this story basically uh, through that, through that process of uh, World War II soldiers coming back from the Pacific theater and basically like exchanging and taking off their uniforms and putting on Hawaiian shirts and, and bringing them back to the mainland. And that being one of the drivers of what made these Hawaiian shirts, like ended up being popular in the United States after that, it was all these dudes bringing them back from Hawaii, basically. Uh, and I really latched on to that, to that story because I thought like, wow, what, like, what a powerful moment of coming back from the Pacific theater, which, I mean, we could talk about that for, for days, but how, how insane some of, some of that fighting was. I mean, you, you hear the, all, all the stories like Guadalcanal and, and Iwo Jima and everything. And you just, you, you hear, you hear these stories and they come back and they, of all the things that they could, 
that they could do, they, they decide to wear an Aloha shirt. And to me, that, that kind of like symbolized a decision. You know, there was some decision that, that was made that said like, I'm going to take off this like dirty ratty uniform and I'm going to put on this like ridiculous. I mean, I think it's scientifically proven. You can't wear an Aloha shirt and have a bad time at, at the same time. Like, you, you know, and so it just, it like, it, 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 to me, it symbolized like a very, very simple, authentic, like pursuit of hope, basically. And I was like, I was like, that's, that's a story that I think is powerful and it's not told enough. And so that was the idea for the, for the product, basically saying like, Hey, veterans are basically responsible for popularizing the Aloha shirt in the 1940s. Right. And so that would be the perfect product to help to give back to veterans. And so I was like, if we could make some badass Hawaiian shirts and use the profits to help this community that I feel so passionately about, then that would be a really like, I guess, worthwhile cause to be, to be starting. So those kind of two things being in that mindset of wanting to help and then hearing the story and thinking like, shit, somebody should make a product that uses that story for good. Uh, yeah, those two, those two things came together and easy company outfitters was kind of born out of that idea. Pretty impressive. I mean, I love how you tie it all back. You know, it comes kind of full circle from the greatest generation to the next greatest generation, which is, you know, the war on terror vets. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's just all very symbolic. So I certainly appreciate that. Um, do you have any idea of how to make apparel? <laughs> it's, it's the other part of this, right? It's one thing to start a business in an area that you know. It's you know, hey, look, you can work in restaurants all your life and understand the business. Open up a restaurant or a bar and be okay. But if you've never made clothing before, I never have. Um, I've certainly cut some sleeves off t-shirts, if that can. <laughs> yeah. but nonetheless, uh, do you know how to make t-shirts? How to make shirts? Right? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, and it's funny because I'm, I'm not the most fashionable guy in the world either. I think, uh, I do love Aloha shirts, but like, I'm not, I'm not like the leading edge of, of the, of the fashion industry here, just in my, in my personal life. So there was a lot of significant hurdles for us to overcome just with our personal, uh, skill sets, uh, and kind of, kind of domain expertise, but, uh, no, when, when, when I started, I had no idea how to make, how to make clothing, how to make an Aloha shirt, how to, how to, how to do any of it. Um, but we learned, and I think, well, I, two things kind of helped us. One, we were very passionate about our mission. And so I was willing to fail however many times it, it took to learn what I needed to learn in order to make the product, uh, successful and to get it to, the standard that we are trying to achieve, which is to make basically the best Aloha shirt that we could, that we could find anywhere. So that was, you know, we set out, we set a high standard from, from the beginning and I was willing to do whatever it took to, to get to that, to that standard. And we failed a lot of times, I'll say, um, before we got to a product that we're actually proud of. So that was like the first thing. And then um, second thing, I'm just thankful that we're not out here making fucking computer chips because if it was more, more, more advanced than clothing, you know, it was, it wasn't easy, but at least it was something where I was like, I can figure this out. Like I can figure out how to make a t-shirt. I can figure out how to make an Aloha shirt. I, I don't know how to do it right now, but I'm pretty sure with enough, with enough effort, I can get there. Um, and so I kind of had that confidence that we could get to the finish line. Uh, yeah. So as you start undertaking this venture, do you, who do you pull? You have to get other people involved, right? You got to pull some people into this thing. You ain't running this whole thing by yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really the key to any, any startup is finding, even if it's one person to like, if it's like, I know Mark with your story, if it's, if it's you and Matt, like you, you need, you need like somebody, right. And if you have more, if you have more than one person like that's amazing uh but for me it was i called my my best friend my college roommate steve and was like hey i've got this idea you know i think this could really be like something that we're proud of if it if it works and we can actually like get this off the ground and he loved it he helped me like flush out the ideas and uh he kind of latched on more to the to the operation side and actually, you know, like producing the apparel. So it was great where he was focused on that. I, I was focused on 
you know, like how are we going to sell these things basically? Um, and like get this platform off of, off the ground. And so we kind of divided and conquered. And that was like the first person that I brought into the, into the business. And, uh, I'm so thankful I, I did because, uh, you know, having, having Steve around has kept me out of so many mistakes that I would have made, uh, if I didn't have anybody else, uh, to go through this journey with. And yeah, so that, that's kind of how we, how we started, uh, you know, dividing and conquering. Um, everybody who's in business or any author who writes a book, I always ask them like when you finish that first book or when you make that first shirt and you hold it up, it's like your first child, right? Like this is what you have created. So what was that moment like for you? Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm picturing these guys like holding up their book and being like, yes, like I wrote all these pages. That's what I'd be like, I <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah, man, it was, uh, it's definitely rewarding, you know, like the more you struggle with something, I think the more rewarding it's going to be when it finally works out. It, it took us a long time and we actually did a Kickstarter that was successfully funded. Thank God. Uh, we raised 25,000 bucks to make our first round of inventory and kind of use that money to, to test all the different things we needed to, to test, to make like a shirt that was going to be worthy of our, of our, our cause. I think that that was kind of the, one of the hardest things for the product was that we had set, we had set our, like our, our belief bar, if you will, our mission was set so high in terms of how we kind of like put, put it, we, we basically put our, our mission on this pedestal that we were like, what we're doing is like a noble thing to be doing. Right. And so we didn't want to let the mission down by building a product that wasn't going to be worthy of participating in that journey. So we, we knew we had to make a shirt like that was going to, to really stand up to that. So we didn't want to just, you know, like you see so many clothing brands too, where they just like private label everything. And they just, you know, they're buying some shit from China and they're slapping their logo on it and like calling it a brand or, or whatever. Uh, and we didn't, we had no interest in doing any of that. We were like, we, we knew that we wanted to make the production of our product as important as the product itself. Right. And then hold all of that up to our mission and like have this all kind of, kind of connect. So we made everything from scratch. Like we, from the cotton farm all the way to the final, you know, stitching, we wanted to control and know about the entire process to make sure that it was, it was being done the right way so that we could hold up our, t-shirt and put it up against our mission and be like hey this shirt's worthy of participating in this in this mission so uh yeah at the very end when we held up our product and we're like all right i actually built this we were super proud of it like we had been told by so many people uh you can't make you can't at scale make economical american-made clothing like it's impossible. You need millions of dollars of investment. You need, you need scale right off the bat. You can only do it with like super expensive luxury items. Like you'll never be able to make a shirt that competes with any of the, any of the brands that everybody knows that are importing all of their product. Like you just, you won't, you won't be able to do it. And you know, it sucks to hear that, especially when you're getting, getting started. But then when you do make your product and you're like, like, Hey asshole, I did it. I did ex what, what you told me I couldn't do. I fucking did it. You know, that's, that was super cool for us. You know, we weren't like, I'd say motivated by that day in day out, but I think holding it up at the very end, I was like, fuck yeah, we did this. That's pretty awesome, man. Um, and, and again, if you go through your website, you kind of, you're not shy about your process, uh, and, and how you make your shirts and where you make them and, and, and the cost of everything else. I mean, it's pretty forthright in business that you see somebody lay it out for you like that as a consumer. Yeah, I think that's one of. I mean, you you don't you don't see it, and I think it's really a shame that 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 you don't. I think companies should be more transparent with how their products are made and how much they cost and what ingredients are in them or, or not in them, and like just be honest with 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 people. You know, I mean, for us, it maybe it's a little bit easier because we're we're so small, so we kind of see like the company really is an extension of us. And so 
we're gonna the company's gonna act exactly as we act and we try to you know of course act with integrity and honesty and so like it wasn't a difficult decision i'm sure for big corporations it's a little bit different but for us it was very easy to make that that call but yeah we want we want people to know that like hey like our shirts are expensive right they're they're priced kind of according to what other aloha shirts are like priced at which is you know like 120 bucks basically if you go onto any of the big brands website so we knew we wanted to compete on that on that price point but we wanted to show people like hey like our shirts are expensive to make like it costs us 66 bucks and change to make each one of these and then we're only selling them for 118 and you know that that other aloha shirt that that, that you're wearing probably costs about 20 bucks to make i mean a lot of these companies are are, are public companies so you can go on to their financial statements and see their cost of production and you can kind of like it's it's not a secret for a lot of the bigger brands nobody does that though nobody does that right nobody does that but honestly people should and it, it it's like it's like reading the ingredients on your ballpark hot dog and chips and everything else you just don't want to know what's in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly people don't want to know and i think you know the the average consumer is not stupid but the average consumer can be a little bit lazy at least i'll speak for myself like i'm i'm a lazy shopper like make it make it easy for me to know all this information and so of course if you're importing all of your goods from overseas and you're doing it for you know 20 cents on the dollar you're not going to be putting that information out you know like you're going to make it hard for people to to find that 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 information so we put our information like right on our website right on our homepage. like hey this is where we make our this is where we make everything this is how much it costs for us to produce everything and if you have any questions just fucking email us we'll we'll, we'll answer anything you want to know uh so we, we try to put that like at, at the forefront so people can get access to that to that data as a uh, as a fan of shark tank i would tell you that uh the sharks would scoff at your cost uh, <laughs> and your price point for which you would sell it but uh, i as not a member of shark tank uh big fan of the show but not a member of it i would tell you i, I appreciate your your desire for transparency and your willingness to to show the customer and make it easy for them on how you make your product and and you know what your goals are you know i think i think there's value in that especially in, in a society today where there's not a lot of transparency, uh, there's not a lot of, of people willing to just lay it out very simply for everybody else. Um, I think that there's some generic, you know, value in that. Yeah, I, it, it, it is, it is tough operating at, a, at our size and scale where everything is expensive, you know, to, you know, we make a couple hundred shirts at a time. So, our price, our cost point is going to be very different than making, you know, thousands of shirts at a time. So we're, we're definitely at that, at that stage. And hopefully, you know, when people check back in with us in a year or two years, you'll see the quality can, can maintain, but maybe our cost can go down a little bit as we get some, some, some scale basically. So hopefully that, 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 that will come in. We're in, you know, our first year of, of this, of this business and this idea. So I think you know, our cost point kind of reflects that. And we, we didn't want to pass along all of the costs to the consumers. We thought we would basically get priced out. You know, people, people only spend so much money on, on apparel and causes that, that they're passionate about. So we wanted to be competitive um, and basically cash flow the business until we can get some more, some more scale. Gotcha. Well, I'm a big fan of the balsa. Size large would, would work well for, uh, for me. Uh, I mean, seriously, gotcha. it looks great. I mean, it's it's fantastic. I'm just as I, you know, peruse through the website, everybody check it out. Easycompanyoutfitters.com. Uh, now, a lot of this um, and, and the profits go to helping PTSD uh, and veterans and surf therapy for veterans. So how do, you, how do you come up with surf therapy? Yeah, that that was just like it was just an like organic uh, discovery throughout this journey where we knew that we wanted to get, it's kind of started back. It started with like, okay, let's, let's use the profits to give back to veterans. But so that, I mean, that's where, that's where we started this, this conversation It'd be like, I'd be like, if you were Steve, I'd be talking to him be like, okay, so what, what does that mean for us? Like, how are we going to do this? And we had, we had a bunch of different ideas and we went through like some natural iterations, but um, through that, through trying to answer that question, we discovered surf therapy and we were, and we were like, just totally enamored with this idea and this project. And it's really not, it's not 
that well known. I would say a lot of people when they hear surf therapy, it's a new term for them. It's not like, you know, it's not something that, that you hear or talk about every single day. So there's a big educational piece, but uh, we just discovered that this, that this, uh, this, this technique of surf therapy to help with the stress of PTSD has been really gaining traction over the last 15 years. And a lot of uh, people in the veteran community have brought it into the fold for, for, for us and set up these surf therapy clinics specifically for veterans. And so we started to hear these different stories and do that, do that research. And we're like, like, this makes sense. Like this is a, this is a project that seems sustainable, meaningful, making a great impact. You know, we loved, we loved everything about surf therapy. It's, it's all natural, you know, it gets people off medicines and pills and shit like that. You know, I, those have their place of, of, of course, but uh, for people that maybe aren't comfortable, like, you know, going, going into the, see their therapist all the time and getting on, on whatever medications then if they want, if you want something else, surf therapy can be that kind of filler. Um, and so we just loved it. And yeah, that was like the first, the first thought. And so we started calling and, and researching and talking to people and I went and did surf therapy and, you know, just absolutely loved it and said, okay, this is going to be the cause for us. So, um, uh, yeah, we just latched on and, and surf therapy became the give back. It's amazing. Um, I, I just think of being on a beach, but then I also think of that scene in uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall where Paul Rudd and, and Jason Siegel are doing the, you know, pop up, get do less, do more, do less. Yeah. As you <laughs> yeah. and, uh, that would be more frustrating than therapy, but nonetheless, I mean, I've, I've never surfed, so I, I wouldn't know what it's like, but it's one of those deals where, you, you know, you get people out of their comfort zone and you get their mind off of their own stuff that they're dealing with. Uh, and you start to find out that, that uh, it's a much easier way to, to, to get people healthy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is the, the, uh, the process of getting out on the ocean, especially if you, if you've never surfed before and you know, it's going to be a struggle. That's, that, that's, that's part of what people are learning. Like these therapists are learning, Hey, taking somebody that's never surfed and putting them out there and letting them, letting them, you know, go through the process. Of, of failing and then finally standing up and like releasing those endorphins and reminding them like you can be happy again you can you know like you can have these small wins and you know, you're out on the water it's super safe like you can fall off as many times as you want and they have instructors to help you and so like most people are able to to have a good time and it starts out a little bit frustrating but at the end of the day you know you're a little bit sunburned you've had a blast your skin salty like you're feeling really good you know you've made some progress and you're kind of reminded of those of of like of those feelings of 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 failing but then finally standing up so it's a really great uh like reminder for for the brain and then the bigger thing that like i think that people really appreciate that, that I appreciate. I think that that's helping surf therapy gain traction is just the natural community that has started to be formed around going out and surfing, you know, a couple of times a month or a couple of times a year, whatever you have, you have time for, and just like being around other veterans and uh, just like that sense of, of belonging can be just as powerful as the actual like surfing itself. So that, that like combination is just working really, 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 um, really well. So what's next for easy company? I mean, uh, obviously you still need to grow the company. You're only in your first year. So it's very infant of, you know, still in the infancy of this. Uh, but where do you go, uh, here in the next six months, year or two years, what, what's the sort of plans? Sure. I think, uh, the immediate plans is just to have a kick-ass holiday season. That's like, that's our immediate focus is just, try to get out there and get, get our story and get our message out there and uh, see if people will, you know, be interested in joining us this, this holiday season. That's, that's what we're focused on right now. And then after that, uh, once we roll into next year, we've got a bunch of new prints that we've designed this year that we're eager to release next year. So that's kind of the next, the next stage of, of, of production is releasing some more, some more prints and, uh, kind of scaling our product line, if you will. Um, and then really after that, I think it just becomes uh, like, if I look a year or, or two years out, it, it, it turns into, okay, how do we, 
how do we continue to partner with other like-minded people, brands, podcasts, like whatever, uh, like to get our story out there. You know, we're, we're not this, we're not an investor backed, like highly capitalized company that has these big advertising campaigns. You know, we're word of mouth um, and doing stuff like this to get, to get our story out there. So I think thinking a year out, it's like, okay, what's the next evolution of, of that? How do I continue to get the word out there? Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking about a year or two out. I mean, amazing. It's uh, the idea of starting a business and starting a company to me is always so daunting. You know, I mean, it's so easy to see failure right in front of you. And there's a hundred reasons why it won't work and probably one or two why it will. Um, so I give you a ton of credit for, for going out there and doing this. Um, right now, is this the full-time deal or are you still working regular finance stuff on the side as well? Yeah, no, regular finance stuff, uh, you know, pay, pays the bills. Um, right. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm in the, in the finance industry full time and then doing this kind of on nights and weekends, uh, et cetera, which is, is a grind, but I think, uh, for us, like having that starting, starting from a good, from a good place and knowing that, that this was, this was, uh, like an expression of things that we care about, right. Just like joining the military was, or whatever you participate in in your personal life to give back or have a higher purpose or whatever it is for you. Uh, like this is what it is for me. Easy company outfitters is my way to, to give back and to continue to be like a positive impact on my, on my community. So I'm very happy to be, to be doing it, you know, whether we're selling hundreds of shirts or selling, you know, just a few shirts, like obviously we'd love to be selling more, but, uh, of those two options. But I think just knowing that, that what we're doing is a noble cause really keeps us, keeps us going. So yeah, it, it is tough working kind of like two jobs, if you will. And I think that's one of the things that uh, like, I've talked to a couple other entrepreneurs and just people that have ideas and, you know, I, what do I know? I'm still learning a lot. Right. But I have, I have some, some, maybe some insights that might, might be helpful or that I wish I could have told myself. Um, but I think one of, one of the biggest things with like working a full-time job and doing, you know, a side business, if you will, is really just understanding that like you're going to commit to this and a lot of the price is going to be paid by your family and the people that you care about. And, you know, when I'm at home on Saturday night or whatever, and me and my wife go out to dinner and then, you know, it's nine 30 or 10 o'clock, we get back home and she sits on the couch and I go into the office and I work on easy company, you know, from 10 to one in the morning or two in the morning or whatever. And I'm not on the couch, like watching movies or, or whatever. And like, you're going to sacrifice little things like that, uh, all the time in, in order to get this off the ground. And I think just knowing that, uh, or at least being like, being very cognizant of that's what your life is going to be uh, is a helpful reminder that I think I wish I would have been told that, you know, just so that like any like deployments, whatever, like just getting yourself mentally prepared for you and something can be, can be helpful. So um, yeah, it's definitely side, 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 side job. What is the single trait from the military that you're now applying in business or is, I mean, if there's more than one, but you know, What's the one that, that stands out the most? Man, I would say uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. But I think to me, it's that uh, integrity is everything. I, once you, if, you, if you're able to maintain your integrity with your unit, with, with, with your soldiers, with, your, with yourself, right? Like you can have a lot of success in the military. You can, you can go through the schools, you can go on deployments, but like you need that, you need your integrity to be successful. And I think that it's kind of a simple lesson, if you will, but to me, I'm trying to apply that to, to easy company. And I think us maintaining like all of our integrity throughout making everything hundred percent in the United States to pushing out our, 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 our cost points of like participating in these, in, uh, you know, surf therapy, like that's us trying to maintain our integrity. And I think, uh, learn, like learning that and validating that in the military has been a lesson that I'm very helpful. Uh, I'm very, uh, like, I guess, grateful to have learned. And that's what I'm applying to, to easy company. 
Well, I mean, again, uh, easycompany.com, I'm sorry, easycompanyoutfitters.com is where you want to go uh, to check out all of the, the stuff that you can get there. Uh, just an amazing company, great shirts, high quality stuff. I mean, love it all. Uh, honestly, Timothy, it's, it's been a pleasure hearing your story. It's been amazing, you know, just uh, seeing this whole thing come to fruition. And uh, despite just a short time in the military, you know, you've leveraged it the right way. You know, you, you've used your, your military career for all the right reasons into something different. That's totally okay. Cause not everybody's meant to do 20 years, you know, not everybody in that organization needs to be a lifelong individual. We need those sort of transient people who come in and get out um, to keep moving the organization forward. And so from that standpoint, uh, I, I think, you know, you, you're, you're one of those veteran success stories that we need to continue to tell. And so, again, I certainly appreciate you uh, being willing to come on here and talk about it with us. But again, easycompanyoutfitters.com. Wish you nothing but the best of luck going forward, man. Certainly. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. This was a blast, man. Appreciate it. I'll keep being a fan. All right. Tim Grovenberg, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.